Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, November 13th, 2018, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. In this talk, historian Andrew Roberts discusses Winston Churchill's deep connection to the United States and the special relationship he forged with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you this evening, and thank you very much indeed, Louise, for those very kind words. If we are together... Nothing is impossible, Winston Churchill said of the United States and the British Empire and Commonwealth in his speech at Harvard on Monday the 6th of September 1943. If we are divided, all will fail. I therefore preach continually the doctrine of the fraternal association of our two peoples for the sake of service to mankind and for the honour that comes to those who faithfully serve great causes. Churchill whose mother, Jenny Jerome, was born in Brooklyn, is rightly considered, alongside Margaret Thatcher, as the most pro-American prime minister in British history, much more so than Harold Macmillan, whose mother was also American. It was Churchill who coined the term special relationship and even proposed that Britain and the United States explore the idea of a common citizenship. Yet one of the greatest surprises I encountered when researching my book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, was that he was by no means always pro-American. And indeed, he underwent a short but profound, secret, anti-American phrase in the mid to late 1920s. The means by which he emerged from it, never to return, will gratify you. He visited America when he was 20 years old, coming here to New York on his way to observe the Cuban insurrection against the Spanish in 1895. This is a very great country, my dear Jack, he told his brother soon after landing. Picture to yourself the American people as a great lusty youth who treads on all your sensibilities, perpetrates every possible horror of ill manners, whom neither age nor tradition inspire with reverence, but who moves about his affairs with a good-hearted freshness which may well be the envy of the older nations of the earth. Yet his initial private attitude towards Anglo-American unity could also be frankly sarcastic, bordering on the facetious. When his mother proposed publishing a magazine dedicated to the idea of Anglo-American unity in March 1899, Churchill wrote from Calcutta where he was serving as a junior officer protecting the British Empire, that the motto she wanted to adopt, blood is thicker than water, was, quote, long ago relegated to the pothouse music hall. He meant it in a pejorative sense, though, of course, he himself loved pothouse musicals. (laughs) Her idea of having a crossed Union Jack and star-spangled banner on the cover, he sneered at as cheap and told her that the popular idea of the Anglo-American alliance, that wild impossibility, will find no room among the literary adventures of the day. Yet he had earlier welcomed the concept of Anglo-American amity, telling his mother during the Spanish-American War, I am sorry for Spain. America certainly presents its unattractive side to the world. As a representative of both countries, the idea of an Anglo-American rapprochement is very pleasant. 
one of the principles of my politics will always be to promote the good understanding between the English-speaking communities. As long as the interests of the two nations coincide, they are and will be allies. But when they diverge, they will cease to be allies. So his attitude was therefore based on clear-eyed, unsentimental realpolitik at the end of the 19th century. On a personal level, Churchill liked Americans, despite coming from a class and background that tended to see rich Americans as a marriage prospect um, that might be capable of putting a new roof on one's stately home. (laughs) Although Churchill's own parents' marriage uh, took place for love, there was no doubting the popularity of what were called snob dollar nuptials. When Churchill resigned his army commission in India at the end of, 1899, uh, end of April 1899 and returned to London to pursue a political career, he met a pretty young American woman called Christine Conover uh, on board the steamer SS Carthage, who years rela- later recalled how, just as the ship was about to set sail, the, gang- bank, the gangplank was about to be raised when down the wharf ran a freckled, red-haired young man in a rumpled suit carrying an immense tin cake box. Although he had nearly missed the boat, he seemed utterly unruffled. At lunch, or tiffin, as it was called then, we found ourselves sitting directly opposite Mr Churchill. Hardly had he been seated when he bent across the table and said, you are American, aren't you? When we said he was right, he exclaimed, I love Americans. My mother is an American. Inside the cake box was his handwritten first draft of his book, The River War. Yet despite loving Americans at this stage of his life, Churchill despaired at the way they conducted their politics. Uh, No, I'm not going to say that. Um, During the free trade versus protection debate of 1903 to 1905, he wrote to the Tory Prime Minister, Arthur Balfour, to say, I am utterly opposed to anything that will alter the free trade character of this country. Once this policy of tariffs is begun, it will lead to the establishment of a complete protective system, including commercial disaster and the Americanization of English politics. The pejorative reference to American politics was probably to what one historian has described as the, quote, log rolling, the intrigue, the corruption generated by the American tariff system of that time. Yet while he didn't want to copy the American way of doing politics, he did want Britain and America to act together in foreign policy as much as possible in the period before World War I. It must always be a guiding star of British statesmanship, he wrote in December 1911, not only to federate the empire, but to draw nearer in terms of bonds of friendship and association to the United States. The road to the unity of the English-speaking peoples is no doubt a long one, and we cannot see the end of it but it is an open road. This was one of his earliest statements about the confederation of the English-speaking peoples, a concept he would pioneer and one day see as central to Britain's continuing relevance in the world. From 1911 onwards, Churchill's mind was starting to move along the lines that were to climax with his suggestion of joint Anglo-American citizenship at Harvard in 1943. When the United States entered World War I in April 1917, Churchill's tone warmed still further. There is no need to exaggerate the material assistance, he wrote in his book, The World Crisis, for the moral consequence of the United States joining the Allies was indeed the deciding cause in the, sorry, cause in the conflict. Without America, he wrote, World War I, quote, would have ended in a peace by negotiation or, in other words, a German victory. 
So on the 4th of July, 1918, at a Liberty Day meeting in the Central Hall, Westminster, Churchill delivered one of his great orations, claiming that, quote, the Declaration of Independence is not only an American document. It follows on the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights as the third great title deed on which the liberties of the English-speaking people are founded. By it, we lost an empire, but by it, we also preserved an empire. By applying its principles and learning its lesson, we have maintained our communion with the powerful commonwealths our children have established beyond the seas, deep in the hearts of the people of these islands, in the hearts of those who, in the language of the Declaration of Independence, are styled our British brethren, lay the desire to be truly reconciled before all men and all history with their kindred across the Atlantic Ocean, to blot out the reproaches and redeem the blunders of a bygone age, to dwell once more in spirit with them, to stand once more in battle at their side, to create once more a union of hearts, to write once more a history in common. A million American soldiers have arrived on the continent of Europe safely and in the nick of time. They are steadfastly awaiting, side by side with their French and British comrades, the utmost fury of the common enemy. Soon after the war was won, however, Churchill slipped back into an outright scepticism in his view of the United States' role in world affairs. He was deeply disappointed that President Woodrow Wilson had no interest in taking part in his crusade against Bolshevism and that the United States had failed to join the League of Nations. As Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1924 to 1929, Churchill grew increasingly concerned that the American Republican Party's extremely tough stance over First World War debt and reparations was severely damaging global trade, while simultaneously the United States' insistence on building a large navy would, he feared, imperil the primacy of the Royal Navy. Although Churchill had supported the idea that the Royal Navy should be at parity in capital ships with the United States in the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, five years later the Americans also wanted parity in auxiliary ships, including cruisers. Quote, there can really be no parity between a power whose navy is its life and a power whose navy is only for prestige, Churchill wrote in a cabinet memorandum in June 1927. It always seems to be assumed that it is our duty to humour the United States and minister to their vanity. They do nothing for us in return but exact their last pound of flesh. The following month, Churchill went further, writing that although it was quite right in the interests of peace to keep repeating the mantra that war with the United States was unthinkable, in fact, quote, everyone knows this is not true. However foolish and disastrous such a war would be, we do not wish to put ourselves in the power of the United States. We cannot tell what they might do if at some future date they were in a position to give us orders about our policy, say, in India or Egypt or Canada. Evidently on the basis of American naval superiority, speciously designed as parity, immense dangers overhang the future of the world. In September 1928, after a private dinner at Chartwell, Churchill's country house in Kent, the conservative politician James Scrimger Wedderburn noted in his diary how the Chancellor had talked very freely about the USA. He thinks they are arrogant, fundamentally hostile to us, and that they wish to dominate world politics. Poor old England, Churchill wrote to his wife Clementine, after Herbert Hoover's election victory two months later. She is being slowly but surely forced into the shade. Why can't they leave us alone? They've exacted every penny owing from Europe, 
surely they might leave us to manage our own affairs. Clementine wrote back saying that he ought to become foreign secretary, quote, but I'm afraid your known hostility to America might stand in the way. You would have to try and understand and master America and make her like you. In fact, Churchill's hostility to America was not at all publicly known. He assiduously kept it out of his public pronouncements, which was just as well when 12 years later he came to beg the Roosevelt administration for help against Nazi Germany in the dark days of 1940. Yet in the late 1920s, it's clear that he resented growing American power for the realpolitik reason that he feared it might impinge on the British empire that he loved. The United States are stretching their tentacles out in all directions, he complained to Clementine from Ottawa in August 1929. What changed Churchill's mind about America were the two journeys that he took here in 1929 and again in 1931 to 32, and meeting ordinary Americans across the continent. The 1929 visit was to be his first for nearly 30 years. Although he visited the United States 16 times in all, he hadn't set foot here between the ages of 29 and 55. <clears throat> On these tri- trips, he, he rekindled his erstwhile love of America. A disincentive to visit the USA at the time was, of course, prohibition. Um, <laughs> uh, hardly designed to make, uh, to make it appeal to one such as Churchill. Yet, after a Yonkers residence nearly killed him in a car accident across the traverse from here on Fifth Avenue, Churchill assiduously managed to get round the provisions of the Volstead Act. He persuaded his American doctor, Otto C. Pickhart, to write the following note for him, which to me sounds very much like it had been dictated word for word. This is to certify that the post-accident concussion of the Honourable Winston S. Churchill necessitates the use of alcoholic spirits, uh, especially at mealtimes. The quantity is naturally indefinite, but the minimum requirements would be 250 cubic centimetres. Churchill wrote on this in pencil, keep on hand. Yet Yet that doesn't seem to have been enough. Uh, In August 1932, Churchill joked in an article in the Sunday Chronicle, I must confess that on one occasion I was taken to a speakeasy. I went, of course, in my capacity as a social investigator. (laughs) Not only did Churchill prefer to drink alcohol with his meals in America, but he also decried it when Americans themselves didn't. In August 1933, he wrote in Collier's magazine that, quote, a dangerous yet almost universal habit of the American people is the drinking of immense quantities of iced water. <laughs> this has become a ritual. If you go into a cafeteria or drugstore and, cu- and order a cup of coffee, a tumbler of iced water is immediately set before you. This bleak beverage is provided on almost every possible occasion. Whatever you order, the man behind the counter will supply this apparently indispensable concomitant. <laughs> Uh, Little has changed, clearly, in uh, 85 years. Churchill's two visits to America in this period coincided with the Wall Street crash and the start of the Great Depression. Indeed, a bankrupt jumped off a ledge from a window 15 stories up in the Savoy Plaza Hotel while he was staying there. Yet instead of leading Churchill to doubt America and capitalism, the economic collapse made him believe in their resilience all the more. Although he took a heavy 
personal financial hit in the Wall Street cash, the equivalent of over half a million pounds in today's money on one day, uh, effectively wiping out his life savings. He never once doubted either the capacity of capitalism nor of the United States to bounce back. I do not think America is going to smash, he told his American stockbroker in the depth of the Great Depression. On the contrary, I believe that they will quite soon begin to recover. If the whole world except the United States sank under the ocean, that community could get its living. They carved it out of the prairie and the forests. They're going to have a strong national resurgence in the near future. Between January and March 1932, Churchill undertook a marathon, 15-state, 28-city, 41-day, 11,700-mile lecture tour. Only slightly smaller than the 12,700-mile lecture tour that I'm doing for this book, uh, by the way. (laughs) Um, The northernmost city he visited was Toronto, the easternmost Boston, the westernmost Minneapolis, and the southernmost New Orleans, which together uh, with his earlier trips to the West Coast made him easily the best-traveled British politician um, in America, having visited 28 states of the then 48-state union by the time he became prime minister, and many of them, of course, several times over. Churchill's journey around the uh, America in 1931 and 1932, meeting senators, governors, mayors, and congressmen, but also large numbers of ordinary Americans, entirely dissipated his anti-Americanism, and it was never to reappear despite occasional frustrations with American policy during the Second World War and afterwards. You are the friends we would like to see the most strongly armed, Churchill told a dinner of the Iron and Steel Institute in New York. We welcome every growth and development of every arm of the American Navy. Needless to say, this went down well with his audience who were providing the materials for building that Navy, Um, but he meant it. On March the 9th, 1932, he predicted to CBS Radio in New York that as long as the French keep a strong army and Britain and uh, the United States have good navies, no great war is likely to occur. He was proved disastrously wrong, uh, of course, but it was a sign of how far he admired and trusted the United States by then. No people respond more spontaneously to fair play, he he was to tell a colleague. If you treat Americans well, they will always want to treat you better. Of what he termed the English-speaking peoples, the American Republic allied with the British Empire and Commonwealth, Churchill told CBS, there must be some organizing force at the summit of human affairs, some chairmanship in the Council of Nations, strong enough to lead them out of their present confusion back to prosperity. It was a message of hope that he was to state with growing certainty over the coming years as a result of having been won over by close contact with Americans. On the outbreak of war in September 1939, and especially after he became prime minister in May 1940, Churchill hoped that the United States would actively pursue direct involvement in the conflict, recognizing in the evil of Hitler and the Nazis that it was a war for civilization and democracy rather than just another local European conflict. He never really gave the Roosevelt administration enough credit for its efforts to get around isolationist sentiment um, or for the help it gave Britain in 1940 before the passing of Lend-Lease. Yet at the time, Churchill himself was coming in for a good deal of criticism in British politics simply because he was half American himself. On the very day he became prime minister, the foreign office minister, um, Rand Butler, complained of Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax that 
they had weakly surrendered to a half-breed American whose main support was that of inefficient but talkative people of the same type, American dissidents like Lady Astor and Ronnie Tree. The poet Hilaire Belloc said of Churchill, are we going to be ruled by that Yankee careerist? A few years earlier, the 27th Earl of Crawford and Balcarres had put Churchill's supposed lack of judgment down to his ancestry and specifically what he called the Indo-Mexican strains in Churchill's blood, um, which explains the unaccountable fits of madness. Uh, The Jeromes were reputed to have Native American blood. Where the Mexican blood was supposed to have come from is anyone's guess. Um, Edwina Sands, by the way, uh, Churchill's granddaughter, um, told me the other day that she had had herself DNA tested by uh, 23andMe um, and that she is 2% Native American. Uh, So perhaps there is something in the story about the Jeromes. The same snobbishness and anti-Americanism that had stymied any hope of Wallace Simpson becoming Queen of England during the abdication crisis was again deployed, with thankfully far less effect, against Churchill assuming the premiership four years later. Rather like the fat boy in Pickwick Papers, Churchill hoped to persuade the Americans to get more involved in the war by making their flesh creep. In May 1940, he starkly warned President Roosevelt about the potential German invasion of Britain. Members of the present administration would likely go down during this process should it result adversely, he wrote, but in no conceivable circumstances will we consent to surrender. But then he added, if members of the present administration were finished and others came in to parley amid the ruins, you must not be blind to the fact that the sole remaining bargaining counter with Germany would be the fleet. And if this country were left by the United States to its fate, no one would have the right to blame those responsible if they made the best terms they could for the surviving inhabitants. Excuse me, Mr. President, putting this nightmare bluntly. Evidently, I could not answer for my successors, who in utter despair and helplessness might well have to accommodate themselves to the German will. Churchill felt it was vital for Roosevelt to understand the imminence of the danger and its immensity and capacity to bring the problem to American shores. The Royal Navy was the largest in the world, and were it ever allied to the German Navy, and possibly the French and Italian navies too, it would dwarf even the American Navy and would be able to shell cities all along the eastern seaboard of the United States, forcing Roosevelt either to evacuate the populations of New York, Boston, Baltimore, Charleston, Miami, and so on, or alternatively, to come to some kind of accommodation with Adolf Hitler. Churchill was frustrated when these warnings seemed not to move Roosevelt to do more for Britain. Considering the soothing words he always uses to America, noted Churchill's private secretary, Jock Colville, of the Prime Minister on the 19th of May 1940, and in particular to the President, I was somewhat taken aback when he said to me, here's a telegram for the bloody Yankees, send it off tonight. At the end of August 1940, during the Battle of Britain, Churchill's irritation at continued American neutrality was starting to show in private, though, of course, he kept it totally hidden from the public. Of the Americans who supported violating Swiss air neutrality, he said their morale was very good in applauding the valiant deeds done by others. A week before the presidential election in November, which he believed Roosevelt would win with a big majority, he said that hopefully thereafter America would come into the war. He said he quite understood the exasperation which so many English people feel with the American attitude of criticism combined with ineffective assistance, but we must be patient 
and we must conceal our irritation. Churchill thus, understandably, felt a sense of euphoria when it became clear on the evening of the 7th of December 1941, the day of infamy, that the United States had been forced into the conflict through the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. No American will think it wrong of me, he wrote in his war memoirs, if I proclaimed that to have the United States at our side was to me the greatest joy. So we had won after all. Yes, after Dunkirk, after the fall of France, after the horrible episode of Iran, after the threat of invasion, we had won the war. England would live, Britain would live, the Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. Once again in our Long Island history, we would emerge, however mauled or mutilated, safe and victorious. We should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. I thought of a remark which Edward Gray had made to me more than 30 years before, that the United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Of the American people themselves, he added... Some said they were soft, others that they would never be united, they would fool around at a distance, they would never come to grips, they would never stand bloodletting, their democracy and system of frequent elections would paralyse their war effort, they would just be a vague blur on the horizon to friend and foe. Now we should see the weakness of this numerous but remote, wealthy and talkative people. But I had studied the American Civil War, fought out to the last desperate inch. He had also, unlike Hitler, Mussolini, or General Tojo, the Japanese leader, visited the United States and met hundreds of Americans, so he knew what an angry and highly motivated America could do. Later that same month, Churchill gave an address to a joint meeting of Congress, only the third non-American to do so. And he began by saying, I cannot help reflecting that if my father had been American and my mother British, instead of the other way around, I might have got here on my own. He always thought he would have done well in American politics. I could swim in those waters all right, he told a friend. Churchill playfully used a sexual uh, analogy when explaining to another friend about the care he had put into trying to woo President Roosevelt before Pearl Harbor. No lover ever studied every whim of his mistress as I did those of President Roosevelt, he said. But only two days after Pearl Harbor, he used similar imagery when a general noted that his language towards the United States hadn't been quite as supplicatory of late. Oh, that was the way we talked to her while we were wooing her, Churchill replied. Now that she's in the harem, we talk to her quite differently. (laughs) Churchill could be caustic about the enormous backup facilities that the US Army had compared to their allies. In February 1943, he told Ivan Meisky, the Soviet ambassador to London, that although American divisions numbered over 18,000 soldiers, it was 50,000 if you count the entire attending personnel. He then, with blatant sarcasm in his voice, started enumerating two laundry battalions, one battalion of milk sterilizers, one battalion of hairdressers, one battalion of tailors, one battalion for the uplift of the troops and whatnot. He did have a point. When the US Army landed in North Africa, they set up three complete Coca-Cola bottling plants. (laughs) Churchill was soon profoundly conscious, uh, conscious of the way power was tipping away from the British Empire in the Allied Councils and towards the United States. 
One of the reasons that he wanted an imperial conference in July 1943, as the king noted after one of Churchill's lunchtime audiences with him, was so as to discuss the question of putting up a united British Commonwealth and Empire front to show the world and the USA that we are one unity. The Americans are always saying that they're going to lead the post-war world. Churchill delivered his Harvard speech after being awarded an honorary degree there in September 1943. Wearing an Oxford Doctor of Common Law gown and cap, hastily borrowed in New York, which his private secretary, John Martin, thought made him look like a genial Henry VIII, um, he made one of the central addresses of his life, conveying his vision for the future of the English-speaking peoples. Twice in my lifetime, the long arm of destiny has reached across the oceans and involved the entire life and manhood of the United States in a deadly struggle, he said, in what I suppose today might be described as a globalist speech. Um, There was no use in saying, we don't want it, we won't have it. Our forebears left Europe to avoid these quarrels. We have founded a new world which has no contact with the old. There was no use in that. The long arm reaches out remorselessly and everybody's existence, environment, and outlook undergoes a swift and irreversible change. Addressing himself to the youth of Britain and America, Churchill said, there is no halting place at this point. We have now reached a stage in the journey where there can be no pause. We must go on. It must be world anarchy or world order. Throughout all this ordeal and struggle, which is characteristic of our age, You will find in the British Empire and Commonwealth good comrades to whom you are united by other ties besides those of state policy and public need. To a large extent, they are the ties of blood and history. Naturally, I, a child of both worlds, am conscious of these. In perhaps an oblique acknowledgement that the days of the Western empires were numbered, or perhaps a nod to America's tradition of anti-imperialism, Churchill said, the empires of the future are the empires of the mind. There was more than an echo in that declaration of his hero Napoleon's statement that the only victories which leave no regret are those which are gained over ignorance. Churchill defined what connected the English-speaking peoples as, quote, law, language, literature, these are considerable factors, common conceptions of what is right and decent, a marked regard for fair play, especially to the weak and poor, a stern sentiment of impartial justice, and above all, the love of personal freedom. To those isolationists who still believe the United States should not have gone to war, he said, the price of greatness is responsibility. If the people of the United States had continued in a mediocre station, struggling with the wilderness, absorbed in their own affairs, and a factor of no consequence in the movement of the world, they might have remained forgotten and undisturbed beyond their protecting oceans. But one cannot rise to be in many ways the leading community in the civilized world, without being involved in its problems, without being convulsed by its agonies and inspired by its causes. One part of the Harvard speech that was rather strangely devoted to a new language called Basic English. Invented by Charles K. Ogden in 1930, it only had 650 nouns and 200 verbs. And Churchill somehow convinced himself that Quote, the widespread use of this would be a gain to us far more durable and fruitful than the annexation of great provinces. 
He also discussed it with Roosevelt at the Quadrant Conference, seeing it fitted in with his developing ideas about the English-speaking peoples. Quote, propagate our language all over the world. It's the best method, he told the cabinet in July 1945. This will be the English-speaking century. It can be learned in two to four weeks. The paucity of the actual vocabulary of basic English left left Roosevelt unconvinced, however. I wonder what the course of history would have been, he told Churchill, if in May 1940 you had been able to offer the British people only blood, work, eye water and face water, Um, which I understand is the best basic English can do with those five, five famous words. Churchill had signed the contract for his History of the English Speaking Peoples as long ago as 1932. Now he crystallized his thoughts on this concept by saying... The gift of a common tongue is a priceless inheritance, and it may well someday become the foundation of a common citizenship. I like to think of Britain and America, Britons and Americans moving about freely over each other's wider states with hardly a sense of being foreigners to one another. This seems to have been a plea for complete freedom of movement. Despite his irritation with the United States over the debt and uh, cruiser building in the 1920s, and not passing um, an over enough war material in 1940, he had long understood that Britain's future largely depended on strong ties with the United States. It was to be a doctrine that he continued to proclaim for the rest of his life. Yet just because because Churchill was cleansed of any anti-Americanism he felt in the late 1920s, it doesn't mean that the Chamberlainites who made up so much of the backbench Conservative Party stopped thinking of him as a half-breed American during the war. As late as the 25th of August, 1944, for example, the former Conservative Party chairman, Lord Davidson, wrote to Sir Alexander Erskine Hill, the chairman of the powerful 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbenchers, quote, There is talk everywhere that Winston, being half an American, has sold us to the Americans and is accepting for this country and the empire the position not of a partner, but of an employee or pensioner of the United States. There's great per- perturbation in the um, highest quarters in the, in the ministerial circle. Winston is a genius, but he has not the slightest conception that the United States is out to dominate the world. And the words of a very impo- in the words of a very important American financier who has within the last few weeks come to Europe on a mission, the United States intends to be the only trading nation in the world after the war. Although, by definition, it's impossible to only have one trading nation, um, uh, it is uh, also highly unlikely that any financier would have been stupid enough to um, say it, even if it were true. Um, But Davidson wanted the 1922 um, uh, committee to act. Erskine Hill replied to say that the letter confirms views I've heard in other responsible quarters. Despite this prejudice uh, against Churchill, perhaps because of it, the Prime Minister was always acutely conscious of the United States' preponderance now in world affairs, of the 1.452 million troops who were to land in France by the 25th of July 1944. Um, 56% were from the United States and 44% from Britain, Canada and the other contributing countries. Undoubtedly, I feel much pain when I see our armies so much smaller than theirs, Churchill told Clementine. It has always been my wish to keep equal, but how can you do that against so mighty a nation and a population nearly three times your own? He stood in awe of the United States, telling Field Marshal um, uh, Smuts, Jan Christen Smuts, 
at Chequers in April 1945 as they dined off plover's eggs uh, and the finest uh, South African brandy. There was no greater exhibition of power in history than that of the American army fighting the Battle of the Ardennes with its left hand and advancing from island to island towards Japan with its right. By 1947, Churchill had finally reconciled himself to the new truth about geopolitics. In his short story, The Dream, in which he wrote about meeting the ghost of his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, he had to explain to his father that Britain was no longer the leading world power as she had been in his day in the late 19th century, but that now it was the United States. I don't mind that, the ghost replies. You're half American yourself. His policy of making the best of the situation was far more clear-sighted than that of the Lord Davidsons and the Alexander Erskine Hills, who could not. Instead, sorry, indeed, during the 1952 American uh, presidential election campaign, Churchill said at a lunch in Downing Street, I want no criticism of America at my table. The Americans criticise themselves more than enough. (laughs) The story of Churchill and his mother country is essentially, therefore, a redemptive one of someone who so loved the British Empire that he initially could not bear seeing it pushed inexorably um, over the uh, course of his lifetime into the shade, but who reconciled himself to it because the successor power was thankfully not the Kaiser's nor Hitler's Germany, but instead a power that shared a common heritage with the British. He also managed to cure himself of incipient uh, incipient anti-Americanism by a liberal application of the best antidote for it, close contact with ordinary Americans. Although his dream of a common citizenship is still um, as far away as ever, the special relationship has proven its ability to survive any individual prime ministers or indeed presidents. Indeed, um, I've read the obituaries of several people who've written the obituary of the special relationship. (laughs) In conclusion, I think it best to return, therefore, to Churchill's statement back in December 1911 when he said... The road to the unity of the English-speaking races is no doubt a long one, but we cannot see the end of it. But it is an open road. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, we've got a whole series of of questions from you, which I will... um, attempt to uh, to answer. First one reads, there have been countless biographies of Churchill. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, thanks whoever came up with that one. Um, what makes yours unique? Um, did you have an opportunity to look at new sources or is everything there is to know about him already out there? Right. Um, <laughs> um, There are 1,009 biographies of Winston Churchill. Um, So uh, why on earth should I impose a 1,010th on the the public? The answer is that, in fact, there are a cornucopia. There is a cornucopia of new sources uh, that have become available over the last 10 years. I'm reminded of a great quotation from... um, from Pug Ismay, Lord Ismay, who was Winston Churchill's chief of staff, who said when he was publishing his own autobiography in 1960 that um, it would be impossible to have a fully comprehensive life of Winston Churchill until the year 2010. 
Um, and I agree with him because in the last 10 years, we have had this avalanche of new material. We, uh, Her Majesty the Queen has allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. So um, Winston Churchill met King George VI every Tuesday of the war. They served themselves from the sideboard because they didn't uh, want to have any servants present, owing to the fact that the king was trusted by Churchill with all of the great secrets of the Second World War, the ultra-secrets, the nuclear secrets, where they were going to attack and when, um, who he was going to hire and fire in terms of generals and, and ministers. He spoke to the king first about these things. And, um, and there was no real reason why the king and Churchill should get on quite as well as they did. Of course, um, Churchill had supported the king's father, king, sorry, elder brother, King um, Edward VIII in the abdication crisis, and the king had supported Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement. But they did get on very quickly, and um, uh, certainly by the time of the fall of France and the Battle of Britain, and certainly by the Blitz. And in fact, the king called Churchill. He was the only one of his prime ministers that he called by his Christian name, and he also, in the diaries, he writes about um, how Churchill, he saw Churchill as his friend. And luckily, after these lunches, he wrote down everything that Churchill had said. So we have this new source full of Churchill's hopes and fears and apersu and um, jokes from uh, every Tuesday of the Second World War. We also um, have um, 41 sets... Of, when I say we have, I mean I have um, <laughs> in, this, uh, in this book because uh, no other that hasn't appeared in any other Churchill biography before. Um, we, uh, there are 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at the Churchill um, archives in Ch Churchill College, Cambridge, of people who worked with Churchill who were around him, including his uh, daughter, Mary Soames's 1940 diary. Uh, which I've also quoted from extensively. Um, the diaries of Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador, 1932 to 43, have been made available in the last four years, and the verbatim accounts of the cabinet um, of the war cabinet also have been um, have been made available in the last four years. And so, uh, oh, and also, um, I've had. Uh, I've, I've had um, exclusive access to Pamela Harriman's love letters. Um, and Pamela Harriman led a very uh, active romantic life um, in the Second World War, as well as um, being married to and having an affair with, um, with Randolph Churchill, Winston Churchill's son. Um, she also, of course, had an affair with her future husband, Avril Harriman, FDR's um, envoy. Um, and also with um, uh, um, William Paley um, of CBS and Ed Murrow, um, the, uh, the, um, the journalist, uh, and Jock Whitney, um, and General Kenneth Anderson, uh, and, Phil, and the um, uh, um, RAF, um, head of the RAF, Sir Charles Portal, um, and someone that we just know of as Jerry. Um, <laughs> And uh, at one point uh, during the Yalta conference, there were three delegates to the Yalta conference all writing love letters to her uh, at, at the same time. And um, so although I've had exclusive access to her papers, nobody had exclusive access to her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, anyhow, 
and uh, and so so the gentleman or lady who has um, has asked um, whether or not there are any new sources, the answer most definitely is uh, is yes. How did Churchill deal with FDR's strong anti-imperialist views? Um, well, it it, um, it was one of the problems that uh, that Churchill had. He um, he didn't believe that uh, that FDR had any right to um, to write to him about how to deal with the um, Indian National Congress, for example, when the Indian National Congress uh, demanded in 1942 that Britain uh, quit India and that. Um, the uh, and that the Raj was needed to be ended immediately. Um, Churchill, uh, he was uh, effectively they were supported by uh, by Roosevelt. It would have been a catastrophic for the defence of India, especially in the north, where the Japanese were knocking on the on the doors of northern India. Um, had we just evacuated India and done what um, FDR and uh, Mahatma Gandhi wanted at that time. But nonetheless, Churchill didn't take it well at all that uh, he was being given um, advice on, uh, on imperialism from a country which uh, didn't have an empire. Um, did Eisenhower, a Midwesterner, have any influence on Churchill's view of America? Yes, um, uh, Churchill liked Eisenhower. Everybody liked Ike. He um, was a uh, friend of Churchill's. However, all the way through Churchill's life, Churchill wanted Democrats to win um, ele- American elections. There's no example of him throughout his life of him wanting the Republican Party to win a presidential election. He even, in 1952 and 1956, preferred Adlai Stevenson to win than... Um, than Dwight Eisenhower, despite his friendship for Eisenhower. He feared that Eisenhower and the Republicans were not going to, um, were not going to pursue a, a policy of accommodating the Soviet Union correctly, of course, as it turned out, um, but instead were going to continue the, uh, the arms race. And so Churchill, by that stage, after the bomb, after the Soviet bomb was tested in April 1949, um, Churchill became a huge dove when it came to, um, to the Cold War. Um, don't even understand that one. Um, why didn't Churchill attend FDR's funeral? Um, because it was extremely dangerous still crossing the Atlantic. This is the April of 1945 when the um, Germans had 463 operational U-boats. And uh, to cross the Atlantic at that time just simply in order to um, attend a funeral was not a good enough reason. The uh, Third Reich was collapsing. Um, Adolf Hitler uh, shot himself only... Um, only, tw- only three weeks after the, um, uh, the death of FDR, and um, in fact less than that, uh, 18 days after the death of FDR. And it was a, um, uh, an absurdity to just send um, a prime minister over simply in order to ast- attend a, a church ceremony. Now, one of the advantages, of course, of him going would be that he would be able to um, meet uh, Harry Truman, um, early on, but he was going to meet Harry Truman anyway um, at, uh, at several of the, well, certainly the Potsdam conference. Um, and uh, 
it was not a good enough excuse to put the Prime Minister's uh, life in danger. As it was, he travelled 110,000 miles outside the United Kingdom. Um, these are in unpressurised cabins. Uh, he's in his, by that stage, early 70s. Very often he flew within the radius of the Luftwaffe. It was incredibly brave of him to have done what he did uh, already. And... Um, too much to ask him simply to, uh, to risk his life for a funeral. Um, if things had been different, what do you think a Churchill American presidency would have looked like? <laughs> a great question. I, I've absolutely not the first idea. Um, it, uh, I, I'm assuming it would have looked something like um, his, uh, his great um, uh, wartime premiership. He would have been a, uh, as he said, he, he, he could have swum in these waters of the, um, the American uh, political process. I think one thing that he'd have been very good at as uh, in the modern day, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, would be Twitter. Um, <laughs> he, uh, many... No, seriously, many of his, uh, many of his best put-downs, many of his gla- uh, g- g- you know, lines and his uh, crushing remarks to hecklers would easily fit into 280 uh, <laughs> 80, um, characters or fewer. There's a marvellous mo- marvelous joke um, that he made when his, uh, when his private secretary said that their cook had been made pregnant as the result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. Winston Churchill immediately replied, obviously not one of the two gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Churchill was uh, was, um, prepared for greatness, but are there any events in his life or aspects of his personality that could have derailed his walk with destiny? Oh, so many, so many. Uh, not least all of the uh, extraordinary number of the close brushes with death. Um, I think I've, I've lectured to you about all these extraordinary numbers of times that he nearly, he nearly died. He went in the First World War, whose uh, centenary of, um, of the end of which, of course, we're commemorating uh, last week. The, uh, he went into no man's land no fewer than 30 times. Uh, got so close to the German trenches that they could hear him speaking. Uh, sorry, they, they, that he could hear the Germans speaking. I mean, that, um, on any number of occasions, he, uh, in that war, actually, um, whilst he was a battalion commander, there were two occasions where shells went through his, his battalion headquarters and didn't explode either time. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, his, his uh, walk with destiny could have been derailed on any number of occasions. And also, it could have been derailed in other ways, for example, um, ways that meant that he wouldn't have been in the House of Commons. First of all, there were serious attempts to deselect him as a Conservative MP, um, which would have meant that he wasn't in the House of Commons. His own constituency tried to, uh, tried to get rid of him, um, which he faced down magnificently. Um, he, had his father accepted a peerage, um, Churchill would have inherited it in 1895, and so he'd have been stuck in the House of Lords. You weren't able to renounce your peerage until 1963. So he'd have been in the same house as Lord Halifax and unable to, um, to control the, uh, the Commons. Some, he, he wouldn't have been able to have become Prime Minister in May 1940, probably, for the same reason that Lord Halifax couldn't. Um, it had his, um, his cousin, the Duke of Marlborough, 
um, not had children or had died earlier than he did, um, Churchill, Churchill's father would have become the Duke of Marlborough and therefore Churchill would have been the Duke of Marlborough and that would have had the same effect um, of not being able to be in the House of Commons. There are any number of... Uh, you needed the fecundity of the Duke and Duchess uh, to uh, allow Churchill to actually be where he was at that key moment in May 1940. So, very good question, and yes, the answer is many, many things. What surprised you while you were researching the book? Um, did you find out anything you didn't know? Yes, hundreds of things that I didn't know. But what surprised me the most, I think, was something that I was speaking about today, uh, was the way in which, in the King's Diaries, um, you had this sense of great, um, of great uh, frustration and irritation that Churchill felt but couldn't express publicly uh, with the United States because he did believe the Second World War was, a, uh, was really a... a a struggle for civilization and democracy. He couldn't believe that the Americans didn't want to uh, get more involved in it. And, um, and he couldn't say so in public. So it was something that he could, he could tell the king uh, and which the king um, noted down. But I was surprised by the sheer, um, sheer extent of it. <coughs> Did Churchill ever express an opinion of Charles Lindbergh I don't know. I don't know. That's a very good question. I ought to um, know. But um, if, he, if he had, it wouldn't have been a very pleasant one. Um, was Gallipoli a brilliant idea poorly executed or just a bad idea or something else? It was a brilliant idea poorly executed. It was a genius concept to try and get the Royal Navy through the Straits of the Dardanelles in 1915 and to thereby knock out the Ottoman Empire from the Central Powers in the uh, First World War. Had it happened, had they managed to moor the uh, navy off, the, um, uh, off Istanbul, um, it could well have actually managed to, uh, to achieve that. Some Turks later said that all they were going to do was to evacuate Istanbul, but um, that itself would have been an extraordinarily difficult um, thing to have done for the capital of the Ottoman Empire. The execution, on the other hand, um, was, uh, was disastrous. It wasn't Churchill's fault. He wasn't there. He was in London, of course, running the Navy. But uh, we lost six ships on that first day, the 18th of March, 1915. And then instead of just calling the whole thing off after that catastrophe, um, Churchill very much insisted that the ground attack took place, uh, which it, of course, did very late on the 25th of um, April 1915. And that was a a disaster and led to the killing or wounding of 160,000 Allied troops. Um, And and so so that very badly damaged people. People still shouted, what about the Dardanelles at Churchill, all the way through the 1920s at his uh, speeches and even into... um, into the early 1930s. Have we got time for another one? One more. Um, (coughs) No. (laughs) 
Would you comment on Churchill's wonderfully cynical sense of humour? It's not cynical. It's a great sense of humour. He had, he had endless, endless different ways that he used his humour. Um, but I'm not going to go into this owing to the fact that this is the um, theme of my next speech in uh, January. So uh, please come back um, and we can have a whole load of gags. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.